Romans chapter 3. And I want to read today verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning rejoicing that we can do so. We pray this morning that you would receive our praises, receive our worship. We do indeed stand in awe of you. We are amazed at your glory. We are amazed that we get to behold your glory in your Son. That we get to be called your children. That we who deserve wrath instead are the recipients of your grace and love. So we worship you this morning. We remind ourselves of the great truths of the gospel. And we worship you. And Father, we praise you that we get to be here this morning in this land where we can meet freely. We don't have to be afraid that someone's going to break in and kill us or steal our Bible. Someone's going to arrest us for having your word. So we praise you for the freedoms that you've given us in this country, the opportunities that you've given us by virtue of the fact that we live here. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who don't have these freedoms, who met or will meet today in secret. Or maybe they meet another day of the week because that would be harder for the officials to find them. They meet quietly and in small places. Maybe they have a Bible or a part of one. Father, we pray that you would bless our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Pray that you would use them to minister powerfully for your kingdom, even where they are, even in the midst of their suffering and hardship. I pray that you would use them and that they would, they would know that you are working through them, that you are building your kingdom even in those dark places. We also pray that you would comfort them. Pray that you would remove their persecutions that you would redeem their persecutors, that you would bring such a work in their countries where they no longer have to be in fear or uh, they no longer have to deal with losing brothers and sisters in Christ or, or loved ones because they name your name. 
We pray that you would bless our persecuted brothers and sisters in the world, even today. And Father, as we get to meet, we get to study your word, we ask that you would speak to us today. We ask that you would be lifted up, that we would be all here in our minds and not anticipating what is to come, not uh, wondering about what the rest of the day will hold or worrying about our week that's coming, that we wouldn't be rehashing uh, sins or problems or difficulties uh, from this past week, but that we would be here and that you by your spirit would work in our hearts that you would speak to us from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some things in life that need to be just so, or else everything falls apart. I was reading an article this week on some of the things that need to be just so regarding the Earth's atmosphere in order to make life possible on our planet. And uh, the article pointed out numerous things, pointed out that without an atmosphere, the earth would be a rocky planet with no oceans or clouds or life. The mix of gases and the conditions in earth's atmosphere make life possible. Plants and animals need the gases in the air to survive, and the protection the atmosphere provides helps sustain life as well. The article said the atmosphere blocks out harmful rays from the sun. The ozone layer blocks out many harmful forms of radiation. Without the ozone layer, ultraviolet rays would destroy most of life on Earth. And gases in the atmosphere also hold in heat. The Earth's average temperature would fall below the freezing point of water without atmospheric gases to hold enough heat. The balance between blocked radiation and radiation allowed to reach the Earth makes life possible. It continued, life on earth needs the atmosphere to breathe. Animals take in breathable oxygen from the atmosphere and use it to metabolize food into energy. Plants use carbon dioxide to grow and sustain life. And the balance between these two gases is important as well. Animals need enough oxygen to breathe. and Plants need carbon dioxide, but too much carbon dioxide traps heat in the atmosphere, leading to global warming. And on and on and on the article went about the things that need to be just so in our atmosphere in order for life to exist here. Some things have to be just so or else everything falls apart. And in today's message, we're going to see Paul respond to some objections that he had surely received in his years of ministry and preaching. The objections are about the gospel that he preaches And Paul is going to insist that the composition of the gospel must be just so, or it will be no saving gospel. And so our passage today, just these eight verses, is actually one of the more difficult passages in all of the book of Romans to understand. And uh, as that took me off guard and several of the commentator I was reading commentators, it took them off guard as well. They didn't think it would be a big deal to understand, and in fact, it's There's a lot going on. And so it's not my intention to regurgitate or rehash that difficulty for you. It's my intention to help you understand what I think it means. And so I'm hoping the difficulty of that won't come through. Though, we really are going to have to pay attention and think as we're going through this passage. The the verses take the form of a conversation back and forth. There are questions being asked, and they're actually kind of objections or even accusations against Paul's gospel. And then Paul responds to them. 
And so verse 1 and 3 and 5 and 7 are the accusations. Paul, your gospel means this. And then verses 2 and 4 and 6 and 8 are Paul's responses of no, it doesn't mean that. It really means this. And so you have this kind of argument going on back and forth. And so we're going to have to uh, think in order to follow the, the train of thought that's coming through this. The way I read it, the person who is objecting is objecting from a Jewish perspective. The reason I think that is because of the paragraph leading up to chapter 3. If you will glance uh, at the summary of that paragraph that you find there in verse 29, chapter 2 and verse 29, Paul says, But a Jew is one inwardly. Let's start at 28 to make that clear. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so that exchange, that teaching that Paul has given there at the end of chapter 2 leads me to think that the response, the objections, the accusations that come up in chapter 3 are coming from a Jewish perspective. So they're saying, Paul, this gospel you're preaching, doesn't it mean this? And doesn't it mean that? The assumption being that those conclusions are bad conclusions, Paul, and therefore your gospel is faulty, and thus you have the layout that you have uh, as your outline in your bulletin there. First of all, the accuser says, Paul, your gospel is anti-Semitic. Your gospel is anti-Jewish. We read in verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what's the value of circumcision? Paul, this gospel that you're preaching that says that the, the interchange is what's really important and not the outward evidence of being a Jew. It's that interchange that, that is crucial, that's vital, that God is really looking for. Then what about all that relationship and all of those promises given to God's people, given to the nation of Israel? What advantage is that to them? If God is really looking for something in the heart that is something only God can do, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So you see Paul's response there in verse 2. He says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, he's saying, no, God gave the Jews every advantage when he gave them his word. He gave the Jews every advantage when he gave them his word. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago about the, the, the benefit, the huge advantage that we have by the fact that we have such clear and abundant access to God's word. And it was no different for the Jews. They had received direct revelation from God where he communicated himself to them explaining who he was, explaining what he wanted, explaining how to respond to him. What an advantage! As opposed to their neighbors who had no revelation other than the stars and the trees. They didn't know precisely what God wanted from them. They didn't know precisely who God was, but the Jews had it in book form. 
What an advantage for us to know who God is. So I want to pause here before we continue on through our outline just to think about that application for us. We have God's Word. Do we, do we recognize the blessing, the amazing blessing it is from God that we get to hear the teaching of God's Word? That we have it and can read it. That we have helps that will help us study it. That we have elders who will teach it to us. That we can take it home and we can read it for ourselves. And we live in a country where we have the freedom to study it and be unafraid. What a blessing. And not everybody has that blessing. And not everybody in history has had that blessing. What an advantage we have. So we need to take advantage of that. We need to know God's Word. We need to read it. Don't let it gather dust. And so Paul says to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, his accuser moves the conversation a little bit farther. He says, Paul... Your gospel implies that God's word has failed. So God has given them his word, but it implies that God's word has failed. And so he says in verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, the accuser is saying, Paul, you're saying that it was a great advantage to the Jews that they received God's word. Part of God's Word is instruction on how to live. It's the law. But it's also promises made to the nation of Israel. It's promises made about salvation. Promises made about this Messiah who's to come. Who's going to be the Savior. Who's going to be the Deliverer. Who's going to restore. He's going to be their King. Their Messiah. What about those promises, Paul? Because it sounds like in your Gospel... It sounds like the majority of Jews are not believing it. And therefore, the majority of Jews are not receiving those promises. So, what if some were unfaithful, Paul? Has God's word failed? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God, Paul? So the accuser is attacking Paul's doctrine. And and Paul makes it very clear in the book of Romans and elsewhere that the gospel, of course, has moved beyond the nation of Israel. It's gone into the world. Paul was, after all, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he traveled the world. And he preached the gospel. And he would go into the synagogue and preach, essentially till he got ran out of there. And then he would go preach elsewhere. So Paul's message was the gospel has gone beyond just the nation. And it's gone to the people. And in fact... Paul laments in numerous places, and he's going to lament later on in the book of Romans, that so few Jews had believed. And so doesn't that mean, Paul, God's word has failed? Listen to Paul's response in verse 4. He says, By no means let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, and here he quotes from Psalm 51, and that's great Psalm of David, where David is repenting after his sin with Bathsheba. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. That could be translated, prevail in your judgment. In other words, Paul says, no, God always keeps his word, even in the face of sin. Even in the face of sin. Of sin. In other words, even if every single Jew 
proved to be unfaithful, God himself would still be faithful. God is always faithful. He always keeps his promises. He always does what he says he will do. Though it may not be in the time that you might think, and it might not be done in the way that you might expect, God always keeps his promises despite sin, despite the sin even of his people. Christian, we we are called to reflect God's character in our lives, but our poor reflection of him does not change who he is. He is still faithful. God is true regardless of the falseness of others. And that's evidence in David's words there from Psalm 51 verse 4. God's words and judgment are proven true even when people break them. This is the same thing we read in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 33 where it said, You have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Even God's judgment is a revelation of His righteousness. God's justice is displayed even in our sin. And He always keeps His promises, even if not in the time or in the way that we might have expected. And so let's pause again for application for us. Even if every single living person were to agree about something, which of course would never happen, But if every single living person agreed about something and only God were the one who disagreed, God is still right. And every single person would be wrong. I don't know about you, but sometimes I read things in the Bible that I don't like, that I struggle with, and I wonder, why did God do it that way? I would rather have done it this way. I would rather this thing be true than what I read in Scripture. Sometimes we encounter things in the Bible that we don't like or that right off the bat we don't agree with. And if that has never happened to you, you need to read more carefully because sometimes we disagree with God. And what we need to remember and what the application from this passage right here is that when that happens, when I run across what God says and I don't like it or I disagree with it, I'm wrong, and he's right. I'm wrong, and he's right. And so, that's part of growing as a Christian. When we read his word and we find something we don't like, usually what happens is we just skip over that part as if it never happened, and we sort of uh, mute that thing, right? And we keep on going, right? But as you continue to read and as you continue to study, God will bring those things to the surface and He will challenge you with them. And when that happens, Christian, the Bible is right and I am wrong. So the conversation continues. And we see this third accusation that the accuser brings there in verse 5. And he says, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul makes it clear. He's quoting the other guy. He says, I speak in a human way. Paul's saying, this isn't my reasoning. That's, that's the argument that's being presented. But if, my, if our unrighteousness serves to 
display God's righteousness, doesn't that mean that God is unrighteous to judge us? To inflict wrath on us? In other words, Paul, your gospel makes God's judgment unjust. Because Paul, you're saying in this gospel that you proclaim that the Messiah came to the Jews and what did they do? Did they receive him? No, of course. They rejected him and and actually killed him. And what's the result? The gospel goes far and wide. It goes broadly so that, yes, Jews are being saved and Gentiles are being saved. So it seems like the unrighteousness, it seems like the disobedience of the Jews has actually resulted in very great blessing to the world and more glory to God, Paul, if your gospel is true. So if that's the case, the actions that the Jews have taken in their unrighteousness resulted in the glory of God, why wouldn't God rather reward them? For having done something that brought him more glory and brought the gospel to a broader swath of people. Paul, your gospel makes God's judgment unjust. Because how would God be able to judge such a people who resulted in such great glory to God and the gospel to so many people? Paul, that's what your gospel preaches. That's, that's the logical conclusion of your gospel is what this accuser says. And of course, Paul responds in verse 6, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? That by no means may be translated differently, but it's a, a very, very strong negative. In no way is that the case. It's very strong. And he says, you have missed it. You have missed it. And here's what he says. Paul says, no. You've argued that my gospel makes God's judgment unjust. The answer is no. He is glorified and vindicated when he judges sinners, both Jews and Gentiles. He's vindicated and glorified even in the judgment of sinners. Paul's answer is really brief. After the by no means, all he says is, for then how could God judge the world? You see, the argument being brought, the accusation uh, being brought against Paul's gospel is that, Paul, these Jews did things in rejecting the Messiah and putting him to death, did things that actually resulted in glory to God. So then how can God judge such a people when the result to him was glory? And Paul reminds them, oh, but you already believe that God will judge the world. You see, God doesn't only get glory by the salvation of sinners. If if He doesn't get glory by the salvation of sinners, He will get glory by the judgment of sinners. So so Paul says, you've brought an objection against my gospel as as if, uh, therefore, God can't judge the Jews because they bring Him glory accidentally. He says, really, the whole world, even the world that ends up in judgment, brings God glory accidentally, as it were. Because he will receive glory, if not from their conversion, then from their judgment. So the application for us is that God is not only glorified in the salvation of sinners, but also in the judgment of the wicked. 
God's righteous judgment is, more, is one more revelation of His righteousness and glory. That's a startling thought. When we think about judgment, one scholar put it this way. He says, too easily do we forget that God's ultimate concern is for His own glory and not for our blessing. That His righteousness is beautifully displayed when He judges as well as when He saves. We're, we're dealing with a God who is greater and, f- and beyond us. And His ultimate aim, His ultimate pursuit is His glory. And that should cause us to worship because He's, he's not our cheerleader. He is Almighty God. And He will be glorified one way or another. And so Paul uh, lists this accusation, goes to the next point in uh, verse 7 and, and into the beginning of verse 8. Uh, the, the, the accuser responds to Paul and he says in verses 7 and 8, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? He's taken what his caricature of Paul's gospel to the final conclusion. And he says, Paul, your gospel justifies sin. Your gospel justifies sin. Paul's gospel centers on the cross. The point of greatest rebellion by Israel at the rejection of the Messiah. And if Christ had not been crucified and buried and raised, you and I would still be dead in our sins. Doesn't that mean that those who crucified Jesus were actually doing God a favor? They were actually accomplishing God's will. Paul, your gospel justifies sin. And if the salvation Paul preaches is given not on the basis of a person's works, but by faith alone as Paul preaches, Paul, doesn't that mean that God is condoning sin? Paul, doesn't the gospel you preach justify sin? Isn't that the bottom line, Paul? So these are the accusations that are brought against Paul's gospel. And of course, Paul is able to respond. And and this is where his response is so succinct, it's easy to miss. Beginning of verse 8, this is the accuser says, and why not do evil that good may come? And then Paul says, as, as an aside, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, and then he says, their condemnation is just. So in, in other words, Paul's answer is this. The antinomian, who believes that, I'm going to explain what antinomian is in just a moment, The antinomian who believes that and the legalist who sees my gospel as teaching that have both rejected the only gospel that can save. That's complex, I know, and I want to break that apart. First of all, an antinomian, that that word antinomian is broken into, has two main constituent parts, anti, against, and nomos, or nomian, means law. They're against the law, or they've put some other... Something in place of the law. Antinomian believes we don't have to obey God. We have, we have salvation in Christ. 
And that's a wonderful thing. I can go and do what I want. That's antinomianism. Obedience to God is actually irrelevant. We don't need to obey God's law. We don't need to do what God expects of us to do. Those things have no binding on the Christian. So antinomianism, though it's an odd word, and that I put it in there, filled that in for you so you wouldn't have to figure out how to spell it. Antinomianism. I had to look closely. There's a, there's a, a little ditty that R.C. Sproul liked to, when he would teach about antinomianism, this is the, the little song that he had in mind. Free from the law. Oh, blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still have remission. Right? I can do whatever I want. And in Christ, I have freedom. And, and I have forgiveness. I can go about my life doing as I please. So that's antinomianism. The accuser thinks that Paul's gospel leads to that inevitable conclusion. The accuser is saying, Paul, your gospel is antinomian. Your gospel does away with obedience to God. Paul's response is to condemn that position, to condemn antinomianism as slander and blasphemy. And that's what he does when he says, as some people slanderously or blasphemously charge us with saying. In other words, Paul is saying, anyone who preaches a gospel that does away with obedience is not preaching the gospel. Their condemnation is just, he's going to say. Paul says, we are slanderously reported as teaching such a thing. So on the one hand, you have antinomianism. There's no place for obedience in the Christian life. You're saved, rejoice, go about your life, do what you want, and have a good time, see you in heaven. That's antinomianism. But on the other side, you have the legalist. And the legalist is this person arguing with Paul. This person is arguing from the legalist position, looking at Paul's doctrine and saying, Paul, your gospel is antinomian. Your gospel is way over there, he argues from his legalist position. He says, Paul, you're saying that there's, there's no place for obedience. Aren't, aren't you really saying that uh, why don't we just do evil that good may come? So he's representing the legalist position. And that position is equally false. From where he stands, Paul's position looks like an antinomian position. But this guy's understanding... From where he stands, the one who's arguing and accusing, he's saying, look, Paul, you're saying justification is by faith. And faith alone, apart from works. Paul, you're saying that in order to have a right standing with God, you must trust in Christ and what Christ has done alone. And that is antinomian, Paul. Isn't it true, Paul, that we are saved by works? That we are to get our life in order? That we are to live a life that is pleasing to God and the result will be commendation from God? Okay, there, uh, since you have obeyed me, now you are, have a right standing before me and you will be justified. That's the position of legalism. From this guy's perspective, when Paul says salvation is by grace through faith, Paul is speaking heresy and blasphemy from this guy's position. This guy thinks, oh, you need to get your life in order before you come to Christ. You need to do these things in order to please God. This is a position of legalism. And what's Paul's response to this guy? 
He says, your condemnation is just. God's condemnation upon you is just. So you can see why it's a little difficult to follow the train of thought here, but what Paul has actually done is he's, he's told us that the, the gospel is like a train going across a bridge. One man gave this illustration. I thought it was a good illustration. It's like a train going across the bridge. And on one side of the tracks, if you were to go off that way, you end up in the, in the river. And if you go off the other side of the tracks, you end up in the river. The one side is antinomianism. If you're believing a gospel that has no place for obedience, that says God loves you, wants to save you, and that's it, trust in Him, obedience is optional, it's irrelevant, see you in heaven, that's antinomianism. You have gone off of the bridge one way. But the other way, which wants to be very careful to protect obedience to God, has actually changed it to say... You need to do these things in order to be acceptable to God. When you have done them, when your life is in order, when you've worked enough, you will be acceptable to God and He will justify you. And that's another ditch. That's legalism. Paul's message and the message of this passage is that the gospel is so precious and it is so specific that if we lose obedience and we go off into antinomianism, we lose the heart of the gospel. That gospel is not saving. On the other hand, if we go off this way and everything is about obedience, that's how we are pleased or make God pleased with us. That's how we can become acceptable to God is by our, our obedience. We've lost the gospel and we're into legalism. The gospel, the gospel is, is fine and it is specific and it is just so in order to accomplish salvation. I want to close with this. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 if you would. Because I think this passage, this passage is succinct and clear on what the gospel is. Most of us know Chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, sometimes we lose 10. Some people know more, know 10 a whole lot better than they know 8 and 9 because that's where they, they tend to uh, focus their attention. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen closely. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Did you see how that developed? He says, first of all, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, Mr. Legalist. It is by grace through faith that you are made acceptable to God because of what Christ has done for you. So, Mr. Legalist, you've missed the point. And so he starts off at the beginning and says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not by works. You have nothing to boast about. But then he gets to verse 10. Having already addressed the legalism, 
Now he addresses antinomianism. He gets to verse 10. And he says, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mr. Antinomian, you who think that you have salvation in Christ and that means nothing for the way you live your life, that obedience is optional, you have missed the point. The true gospel says that when we are created new in Christ, we are His workmanship created for a purpose, created for good works, to walk in them. That we've been made new, that we were once dead, that we were once separated from God, that we, that we were unresponsive to God. And back in Romans chapter 3, late in chapter 2, he talks about that circumcision that needs to happen in the heart. That change of heart so that now, as new creations in Christ, we are free to obey God. Free to obey Him from the heart. Because He's made us new. He's put His Spirit within us. We're now spiritually alive. And so we respond in obedience. And obedience is not an option. Obedience is what we want to do. Obedience is our life. And so this uh, difficult passage in Romans chapter 3 is actually a defense of the true gospel. It's a, it, it's a reminder about legalism and the danger of legalism. And it's a reminder about antinomianism and the danger of antinomianism. And it's a reminder that that bridge is narrow. That gospel bridge is narrow and it is easy for us to end off in one ditch or the other. And so in, in closing for us, the application is think about your own understanding of the gospel. If you're, if you're believing a a message that says, get right with God, and then He will declare you just, you need to know that that is not a gospel. You need to know that that will not save you. You will climb that ladder forever, and you will never get there. That is not a gospel. And that is not the gospel of Scripture. On the other hand, if you are on this side and you're thinking, God loves me, and that's all that really matters... And He saved me, and I can do what I want, and I will be in heaven, just like the other guy, no matter what I do. God really doesn't care if I obey. I can do away with the expectations of obedience from Scripture. You need to know that that is not a gospel. That message will not save you. The gospel message says we are in dire need, and our hearts are are dead. They're far from God, unresponsive to God. But in the gospel, He makes us new. When we trust in Christ, He, he, he does a work in us where we are made new and we want to obey Him. It's by grace, through faith. It's not of works. There's no place for boasting. And those of us who are new in Christ, we are His workmanship created for good works to walk in them. That is a saving gospel. God doesn't only want to rescue us from hell. He's rescuing us from sin. He's rescuing us from death. And so when we sing songs, I, I stand in awe of you, that is why we stand in awe of Him. And that's the gospel that I want us to go away pondering 
that God has worked so magnificently in Christ that the gospel message is truly saving, not just saving us from a a bad destiny, but saving us from ourselves, saving us from our sin, saving us for God, that we would be directed towards Him. And so that's, uh, that's what this passage is about, the preciousness of the gospel. And so the final application for us is about believing that gospel because there and only there is there life and hope and forgiveness and peace with God. Let's pray. Father, we do indeed stand in awe of you. We're amazed at this gospel and we rejoice at what you have accomplished for us in Christ that not only in Christ are our sins forgiven because of his death on the cross, but we also have new life in Christ. We are clothed in his righteousness And we are made alive. So we are desirous to obey you. You have truly redeemed us. And so we rejoice. And Father, I pray that even as we go and and ponder this message on a difficult passage, I, I pray that the resounding message in our own hearts and in our memory of this time would be that gospel message. That you truly do redeem sinners, not just our destiny, but all of us. Our hearts, too, that we get to stand before you holy and righteous because of what Christ has done and that you work and change our hearts even in this life. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to ponder that and I pray that those who have not believed that message, who have not believed on Christ, who have not believed that gospel, that indeed you would, you would work in their hearts, that they would believe even today, that they would become children of God, that they would find peace with God. That they would not find an antinomian pseudo-gospel, that they would not find a legalistic pseudo-gospel, that they would hear the gospel of salvation in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you'd bless us as we go. Thank you for this wonderful, wonderful wonderful message of your gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. We praise God for this truth from Colossians. In Him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen and amen. God bless you and you are dismissed.